Well, this morning, uh, there could be some two billion people who are actually worshiping Jesus today uh, because it's Easter. Uh, There are about two billion people on the planet that profess that they are in some way a follower of Jesus Christ. Uh, So Easter is kind of a big deal. Uh, In fact, uh, I'm just wondering, how is your Easter going so far? Are you having a good Easter? Yeah, kind of pretty good, right? Uh, Well, I am grateful for Easter. I think it's a great day. Um, It's also an important day. Because it centers on one of the most important doctrines in the Christian faith. And I find it really uh, important that we understand the significance of the resurrection, not just on Easter, but every day. Now, the reason I say this is because I like to often ask people how they would explain the gospel to someone if they were to explain the gospel to them. And it's fascinating to me that one of the elements that is so often missed is the fact that Jesus Christ didn't just die and wasn't just placed in a tomb, but he was actually raised from the dead. And so a lot of times I'll just sit there and just kind of wait on people as they're explaining the gospel and they say, and and then he was buried and then, and so we're forgiven. And I'm like, is he still in the tomb? (laughs) And they're like, no. Oh yeah, he was raised from the dead. Well, I think that's a critical thing that we need to know about Christ. In fact, if you look at 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is speaking about the resurrection, he actually says that if the resurrection isn't true, then we should be pitied above every other human on the face of the planet. Not only that, B.B. Warfield, the great Princeton theologian, speaking of the resurrection, said that it is the gravity of the Christian, the center of gravity of this Christian hope and the Christian faith itself rests in the fact of the resurrection. Now, I love that, that phrase, the fact of the resurrection. See, this is a great day to be reminded that Christianity is uniquely a religion that holds to a factually verifiable miracle that every human must deal with. This is not the kind of thing that took place while Jesus was alone in the woods. This was a miracle that took place before hundreds of eyewitnesses. So, was Jesus Christ raised from the dead or not? We have to answer that question. If He was, then I think that you must listen to Him. And if not, then the gospel's kind of pathetic. Well, our resurrected Lord appeared before eyewitnesses on at least 14 different occasions in the Bible over a 40-day period after His resurrection, including one appearance to over 500 witnesses at one time, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, last year we looked at the first of these sightings where Mary Magdalene met Jesus. And this morning what we want to do is we want to look at the second sighting, which was also by women, Mary, Salome, and Joanna, in Matthew 28, 1-10. You can go ahead and be turning there. We're going to be in Matthew 28, 1-10. Now just to catch you up to speed, uh, Jesus has died, He has been buried, and right in Matthew 27, before this text, it ends with the Jews asking Pilate to send a guard of soldiers to protect Jesus' tomb. Isn't that interesting? They, they actually themselves remember Jesus' teaching that after three days He would rise again from the dead. And they didn't want His disciples to steal His body and claim that He is risen. Well, we're going to see this morning that the resurrection comforts and mobilizes those who seek a compassionate Savior. The resurrection comforts and mobilizes those who are seeking a compassionate Savior. That's the good news of the resurrection this morning. And we see this first in verse 1, in verse 1 of Matthew 28. Now, you'll notice here that these verses uh, help explain for us while we are worshiping together on Sunday as Christians traditionally have. Now, in some other countries, they have to worship on Friday like in Dubai or other days. 
but it has been tradition that Christians meet on Sunday for this reason. And here, notice in Matthew 28.1 what the Word of the Lord says. It says, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. So let's just stop there for a second. I think this is important. You'll, you'll notice if you've read through the four Gospels that each has a different list uh, with women in it. And the different lists actually uh, speak of different women who are acknowledged as being at the tomb. So uh, all of them acknowledge Mary Magdalene as being at the tomb. But you'll notice as you read through that Matthew adds Mary, the mother of James. Uh, Mark adds Salome and Luke, Joanna. And, and I believe that if you look at the list and the descriptions, the way that you understand it, there might have been as many as four Marys at the tomb that morning. And so I think there were at least four women that showed up at the tomb. Now, this is not really a problem for us because we know that these gospels are coming from different uh, eyewitness accounts with different purposes. And so we really understand that there's actually a beauty to this. In fact, Richard Bauckham argues that each author included the names of their original audiences uh, that could seek out personally these women, these specific women, to verify the factuality of their claims. And they would have been accessible and authoritative sources of these traditions as long as they lived. So if we're thinking about the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew would say, if you don't believe that the tomb was empty, just ask one of the Marys. Now there are a couple of things that are fascinating here. As you look at this, the, the, the first is that John 20, you'll remember, records Mary, Mary Magdalene as the first eyewitness of Jesus. I believe that she actually is going to peel off at some point in this narrative by the time the other women see Jesus in verse 9. And there you'll, you'll see that at least Mary, Salome, and Joanna seem to see Jesus face to face. But there's a second thing that's fascinating, and that's this, that by all accounts, women first witnessed Jesus raised from the dead. So at least this first one or two experiences are coming through the eyewitness testimony of women. Now, this I find fascinating because it would have been a horrible way to build a conspiracy that was saying that, that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead. Especially in the first century where women faced much greater injustices than even exploitation and unequal pay. See, their testimony wasn't valid in court. First century Jewish historian uh, Flavius Josephus, he spoke to this. He said, let not the testimony of women be admitted because of the levity and boldness of their sex. Men, not a good thing to say to your wife as you're in an argument. William Craig uh, of this century concludes that women eyewitnesses would have been so embarrassing that it must be true or they would have used men in the story. See, this isn't embarrassing for Christians though, is it? It might be for history and in a court of law, but it's not for our faith. See, don't miss this. God is showing us here at the very foundation of the new creation hope that God values women more than every earthly culture, including ours. God always has. See, some will tell you that religion is looking to, in some ways, suppress women from actually fulfilling what true humanity looks like. But the Bible says the reality is that only in Christ will you see what it means to be fully human, whether you're a man or a woman. And we see this here. Now, I find this important. You know, you need this good news when you watch Fox News. Your heart breaks when you see men like Larry Nassar or Harvey Weinstein or Bill Cosby using their power, abusing their power to take advantage of women, to victimize them. 
Now, I'm an unapologetic complementarian. That only means that I believe that God created men and women equal in value, dignity, and worth. And yet, I think the Bible also communicates that women and men have diverse roles both in the family and the church, and that that's something that God created as gloriously beautiful to make His name great, to show His character. See, Jesus didn't first appear, though, here to the sons of thunder, but to women. Now, sisters in Christ, I just want you to be encouraged by this. Uh, We as a culture, I believe we as a church, ought to fight for women to be treated with dignity. But King Jesus has valued your witness long before Hollywood did. He alone is a sure ground of your identity and worth. God values your witness to the gospel. Now, husbands, I, I believe there's a resurrection message for here, too, that Jesus is the model for how we ought to treat our wives. I mean, do you seek to live with your wife in an understanding way as Peter calls us to in 1 Peter 3, 7? Are you listening to your wife, trying to understand your wife? Are you living with her in a way that shows the dignity with which God looks at her? I believe this is a text that encourages us to do that. But not only that, single guys, let me just encourage you to value women like Jesus does. If you're a single man, you need to love women. You need to encourage them in the way that Jesus does looking after, caring for both their souls and protecting their bodies. You'll remember in Romans 13 that Paul warns against not just sex, but also sensuality outside of marriage. So we're called to treat women like spiritual sisters until one of them becomes your physical wife. And Romans 13, 14 says, make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. That's darkness and not light. So let me just ask you this morning, if you're a single man, And if you're a married man, this this question I think is relevant for you as well. Are you giving no place for sexuality or sensuality outside of the context of marriage? And the things that you're looking at, and the ways that you are treating uh, women that you are friends with, that you go to church with, that you are in relationship with? Well, I think that Jesus would say that we need to model how to look at, think about, talk to Touch, pray for, and serve with women for God's glory and not our own fleshly desires. Notice that God doesn't exempt these women from a front row seat to the heart, to the terrors of heaven though. You might think that, well, women are gentle, so they might break, so we need to protect them from difficult things. But here we find a scene in the following verses that actually show us women who are confronted with very difficult experience. Notice second, heaven terrifies and paralyzes human warriors in verses two to four. Did you see this? So Pilate, you'll remember, he sent a guard, likely between like four and 16 soldiers, trained, battle-tested warriors were set up to protect the tomb from anyone getting in at the risk of their own death. And catch what happens when these brazen gardens, the guardians get a taste of heaven. Here you'll see that There was a great earthquake in verses 2 to 4. And look there with me and see what it says in Matthew 28, verses verses 2 to 4. Here's what he says. He says, and behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning. And his clothing, white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. You can only imagine this scene. But here we find that these armed, trained soldiers 
or in the presence of this angel. Now, in Matthew 26, verse 53, you'll remember that there was another angelic experience a little bit like this. Uh, in this sense, the disciples had grabbed their swords to protect Jesus because they were coming to take him. Judas was bringing them to come take him under the dark of night. And you'll remember that as they went to grab Jesus, Jesus tells his guys to put down their swords and to stand down. Do you remember why he said? He said, don't you know my father would send 12 legions of angels if I asked? Now catch this. Jesus had 60,000 angels at his disposal in that moment if he wanted to call them down to stop what was going down. But he said, you need to stop because this is just according to plan. So here I think we get a picture of what kind of power those angels translated into. Notice here that one angel drops from heaven with an earthquake and the appearance of lightning and clothes as white as snow. These are images of a theophany where God shows up like that on the Mount Sinai in Exodus. This is a, a powerful image of, of heaven dropping down into real time. And this angel, he actually moves the stone that had sealed the tomb by himself and then sits on it. Now, why do you think he was sitting on it? I think it's at least because he's not worried at all about these earthly warriors. Because my, I, I think about this, and it reminds me of, of my own grandfather. My, my grandfather, before he became a believer, uh, he used to be a really tough guy. And uh, he would actually walk uh, sometimes uh, past bouncers at bars for fun, and he would just look at them in the face, and he would stare at them, and then he would say, what do you think you're doing here? Now, that's a good way to lose teeth, but it was also a good way for him to show that like, he thought of himself as a manly kind of man that nobody was going to mess with. And here, I think this angel, as he sits on this stone, it shows that he is absolutely not at all concerned, at least about these men. And catch what happens to these warriors in verse 4. It says, and for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now, don't miss the power on display here. A glimpse of heaven paralyzes these brave human warriors with fear. Now, just think about this. This is just one angel. And King Jesus is the captain of countless legions of angels. And these guards feared someone outside of the tomb getting in when in reality they should have been fearful of the one in the tomb who was coming out. See, this is the, the power on display is what's in there. This man who is dead is about to be brought to life. Please don't miss this. Our imaginations are simply incapable, I believe, of handling too much of the eternal weight of glory that is awaiting for God's children. God will restore all things. And we will live in a new heavens and new earth apart from sin, death, and the devil, free of the fall forever. But right now, heaven is where God is. And catch this, heaven should be terrifying to humanity lost in their sins. Now, I don't know what kind of angels you've been thinking about. And I don't know what kind of images of heaven that you've had. When I was growing up, we had these cute little chubby angels that were like babies with wings. And I used to look at those and I used to think, Wow, so that's what Matthew 28 was talking about. That kind of little baby chubby, you know, looking angel causing fear in the hearts of men. That's not the image that we ought to get. And you were laughing, but I just wonder sometimes if we have some wrong images of what heaven is really like. As if we have in some ways domesticated heaven to the point that it does not affect our earthly lives anymore. All of us, I think, in some ways have created our little chubby angels that look like babies. And we need to be 
recaptured, reinvigorated by an image of heaven that is from heaven itself. Now let me give you another image. Isaiah 6. We have Isaiah himself, who is a prophet, a pretty good guy, right? I'm guessing like a prophet typically, I mean a little strange with their behavior, but the kind of guy you'd want your daughter to date, maybe a better job, better income, but mostly a good holy guy, right? And he comes before the presence of God. And what is the first thing that he says? Oh, that's cute. I just want to touch your little belly. No, when he comes before the presence of God, what he says is, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a people who are unclean, who have unclean lips. Now just think about this. Woe is a word that comes from funeral language. It is a word that is associated with death. And so when Isaiah, this really good guy, comes before God, the very first thing he says is, I am dead in your presence. Now, why is he dead in the presence of God? Well, because heaven is fearful for sinners unless God drops down and helps them. That's exactly the message that we see here, isn't it? Here we see soldiers who are as good as dead. Now, if you're here this morning and you're a non-Christian, let me just let you know that we are grateful that you are here. This is exactly the place that we would love for you to come and be regularly, to hear about what heaven's really like, about what God is really like, about the character of Jesus and about what his people are really like. But this morning, maybe it is that you are not taking heaven and death seriously. And maybe it's because it scares you so badly or it doesn't scare you enough. But eternity should haunt and terrify us if we have not received the grace of God. So catch this. Not everyone that fears God finds God's favor. The soldiers look dead because they were dead spiritually. And not everyone who gets a front row seat to a miracle of God becomes a child of God. In fact, you'll remember in Matthew 7, there were some who even performed miracles in the name of God, right? Those who prophesied and even performed exorcisms. And yet Jesus warns them that on that last day, when they come before him on his mighty throne, he is going to look back at them and he's going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you, never knew you relationally. You never truly had your faith in me. See, we need more than an opportunity to see a miracle firsthand to choose the good news of Jesus' resurrection. If we really want to choose the good news over fake news, we actually need an intervention of God Himself to come and to change our hearts. So let me just say, you can observe a miracle from heaven face to face, like these soldiers, and even study the evidence of the resurrection. And really be sharp like Anthony Flew or Lee Strobel. But at the end of the day, you actually need a miracle of the heart. Your heart needs to be changed by God Himself so that you seek the comfort of heaven in the face of Jesus. See, we need a double grace. The double grace that John Newton speaks of in his song. Where he says that it was grace that taught my heart to fear. But then it was another grace that came in and my fears relieved. We need both of those graces, not just the fear of terrifying heaven, but also the comfort that comes down from heaven. We want to give God our hearts, but we need God to take our hearts. Now, This morning, we want to give you a mug, and we also want to give you a challenge if you're a non-Christian as you leave today. I want to encourage you that if you're not a believer, to actually ask someone here, another Christian, to pray for you that God would change your heart. I believe that we have a number of folks in this building who would be a tenacious prayer warrior for you, who will pray for you and even pray you into heaven if that's possible. 
So let us know, and we would love to pray that God would do that work in your heart. We have seen God do that amongst us, amongst many, and we would love to see that happen to more. But notice in verses 5 to 11 that these women find a fear that not only paralyzes, but mobilizes. These women, when they they actually are terrified, they're also mobilized. Uh, Third, notice heaven comforts those seeking Jesus in verses 5 to 8. Heaven comforts those seeking Jesus. See, everyone exposed to heaven will fear because it's a fearful thing. But this terrifying heavenly ambassador, this angel, that causes their hearts to fear also seeks to relieve the fears of these women in verses 5 to 7. Did you see this? Here's what it says. But, but the angel said to the woman, the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come see the place where he lay. And then go quickly and tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee, where you will see him. See, I have told you. Well, here we find something incredible. The experience of heaven terrifies everyone involved here. But notice the angel speaks specifically to these women a better message. He says, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Now, what's the difference you have to ask between these warriors and these women? Well, I think the angel actually tells us in verse 5. He explains. Here's what's different about the women. He says, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. See, he knew these women truly sought Jesus. Now, just to be clear, these women were not titans of the faith. I think this text also tries to show us this. They weren't titans of the faith. These are not your extraordinary sort of, you know, survivor style Christian. These are normal Christians. I believe in many ways. They get an extraordinary experience, but are very normal Christian women. Here's why I would say this for a few reasons. First, notice that they heard Jesus explain on a number of occasions that he must die and be raised again from the dead. And even his enemies heard him teach this. We saw in verse 27, even his enemies were saying, we need to keep them from being able to corroborate this false claim that Jesus is going to be raised from the dead. That's why the guards were there. And yet these women expected to find a dead Jesus whom they could deal with with spices. Not only that, we see second, that they were pretty average in the sense that the angel shows the women the empty tomb. So he gives them evidence that Jesus' body was no longer there just in case they wouldn't believe a word from heaven, right? Like if an angel tells you something, like I don't know how many of us would have the wherewithal to say, okay, well, can you like prove it? No, I think we're kind of shocked that like, you know, there's a heavenly being that we've just come into the presence of. And like whatever you say, like I'm buying right now because I'm realizing the world isn't quite what I thought it was. And yet here, the angel from heaven shows them evidence on earth of the resurrection just to to help their faith. And third, notice verse 8. It ends saying, so they departed quickly from the tomb. And notice what they, they left the tomb with. It says, fear and great joy. And they ran to tell his disciples. Did you catch that? They departed with fear and great joy. I don't really think that this is actually a different kind of fear than the fear that the guards experienced. See, didn't the angel just say, do not be afraid? 
And, and then we get just a couple of verses later, and as they're running out, it says, even with the empty tomb and the angel's command, they still have fear mixed with their great joy. I like what John Calvin says here. He says, this mingling of fear and joy shows they still have not fully trusted the testimony of the angel. The opposite thoughts coexist in their hearts. Great joy and fear. Now this is intense joy. Don't, don't get me wrong. Uh, the, the literal translation of this is, is actually m- mega joy. It, it's great joy. The same phrase is the phrase that Jude uses in his doxology in verse 24 where he says uh, there, um, describing those of us who will be presented before Jesus Christ on the last day, he says this, that we will be presented blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy when Jesus Christ returns. See, when the disciples later see Jesus in Matthew 28, 17, uh, we know that a similar thing happens. They see Him and yet it says this little note, some doubted. See, I take this to be a heavenly joy breaking into the presence and the hearts of these women who still fight a fear of the power of heaven. Heaven's joy tempers and tames their fears, but they still fear. Isn't that a good encouragement on Easter? And maybe this morning you're thinking to yourself that maybe I don't have true faith because I don't have profound faith. And here we find that God comes and visits the weak amidst their fear and delivers them this great joy. See, it's not the perfection of our faith, but our posture towards Jesus that makes all the difference. The resurrection brings comfort and joy to the fearful hearts of those who are merely seeking Jesus because they know there's nothing in and of themselves to bring them the peace with God that they need. Heaven is dangerous without Jesus. And there's nothing in them that can bring them the kind of hope and comfort and safety that they long for apart from Him. Let me just give you five quick ways that I believe the resurrection should comfort us. And I'm going to send you on a scavenger hunt for the next week, just thinking through the Scriptures why the resurrection should be encouraging to you. But here here are five quick reasons that we find in the Bible. The first is that the resurrection comforts us that we have peace with God in heaven. I mean, that's the, that's the big thing. That we have peace with God in heaven. That we have a just God. And that we are a sinful people of sinful lips like Isaiah. Who need God to do something if we're going to be brought to Him. If we're going to have peace with Him. And Romans 5.1 says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith in Jesus, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God in Christ. That's, that's something that we can tell our hearts. It's not because of how perfect we are. It's not because of uh, how perfect our faith is. It's not uh, based on how we actually maintain our lives. But ultimately, is by Christ and Christ alone that we have peace with God. But we really do have peace with God. And Ephesians 5.2 calls Jesus' death a fragrant offering in the nostrils of God. Fragrant. Fragrant in that it accomplished what He set out to do, which is to bring sinners to Himself. And that is something that God delights in. He's not begrudging us. He joyfully delights in the fact of what He has done at the cross and in the resurrection and what it declares. See, we don't have to fear God as an enemy anymore in Christ. But not only that, you should be comforted that the resurrection means God loves us. The cross and resurrection, they weren't an accident. It was according to God's plan. It was on purpose that God sent His Son for you. 
Now, I know that you have days, probably if you're anything like me, where you think like, I don't know if Christ actually understands what he was getting into with me. I feel like my, 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 my struggle with sin and my struggle with loving others well makes me just wonder, like, does, did Jesus really know what he was getting into? And yet we know that from the beginning of time, God set forth a plan to save sinners by his grace and his grace alone. And it was while we were yet sinners that he even sent his son to come and die for us. Not while we were clean and beautiful and purified like we will one day be in the glorious heavens, the new heavens and the new earth, but in our sin he came and died for us. In fact, 1 John 4.19 says this, we love because he first loved us. But then verse 18 before it, I like this. This is what it says. There is no fear in love. Do you hear that? But perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And of course we know that that's something that God is doing in us is perfecting us in love because we are not yet perfect and that's a day that we await. But we have experienced perfect love in Christ. And so as we cling to Christ... We cling to the perfect love that has come down from on high to us as we seek to be perfected by the love that we grasp onto, knowing that it is not our own works that is perfecting us, but is actually the one who has also grasped a hold of us in Christ, such that the Son has us in a way that He will never let us go, and the Father has us in Christ in a way that He will never let us go, such that Christ will never lose us. That's why He says there is nothing in Romans 8 and heaven on our earth that can separate us from the love of God. Octavius Winslow says it this way, Who delivered Jesus up to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. Third encouragement that comes from the cross is the resurrection, and the resurrection is that it means that God keeps his promises when it feels like it's impossible. See, we have rebel hearts that lean away from trusting anyone, including God's word. We doubt God's Word and His good plans for us when our lives are going through struggling and suffering, don't we? I mean, you've probably noticed this. When your, your marriages are difficult or when we are lonely or when we struggle financially, when our kids lack faith, we fear that, that just maybe God's not in control. And even these women who heard Jesus say that He'd be raised from the dead And yet they came to prepare his body for a burial according to tradition. They thought that hope was lost in that grave. That's when the least traditional thing possible happened. Jesus was raised from the dead. I mean, you can always bank on God keeping his word and catch this. God also promises that one day he will finish what he started and wipe away every tear. Freeing us up to a categorically different kind of joy that is no longer mingled with fear or sadness. See, right now we have fear mingled with joy, but one day we will have unadulterated joy. And isn't that a great day that we look forward to in the promise of the resurrection? See, for Christians today, this is a gift of the Holy Spirit given to all believers, this joy. But it's just a down payment of the fullness that is to come. See, this isn't just the, the final leak of eschatological joy entering into creation. This is the first of many brothers. There is much more that is yet to come. But notice also that this resurrection should bring us hope because the resurrection of Jesus is the first of many. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. 
It would be horrible if he had not. It would be pitiful, but he has. And because he's been raised from the dead, he goes on to say, he is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. What a powerful statement. Jesus defeated sin, death, and the devil at the cross while absorbing the wrath of God that we deserved. And his resurrection declares publicly that God has power over death and that those who put their faith in Christ conquer death too. See, Jesus' resurrection is kind of like watching a dam break in slow motion. I don't know if you've ever seen that, but you'll notice like in in some of these images, maybe in a cartoon or something like that, you notice there's one little stream that kind of pierces the wall. And, And you know that as that pierces out, that things are about to get bad quick, right? Like, you know that as soon as that comes out, there's more. And so you'll see another one and then another one. And sometimes maybe you'll see a character trying to like stick fingers in the holes to keep it from breaking and bursting. And then all of a sudden what happens? A flood rushes out. And that's exactly the image that Paul wants to have us, that kind of image in 1 Corinthians 15. As we see Jesus Christ raised from the dead, he says, you see that first little stream and there is a flood that is coming. Many brothers and sisters in Christ are going to experience the newness of life that is promised by the resurrection. Isn't that encouraging? I'm not done. The resurrection also tells us that Jesus is King of kings. Jesus is King of kings. While heaven, thank you, heaven paralyzes some, notice that it mobilizes others. You'll notice that Jesus tells His women, what? To go and tell the disciples before he tells the disciples to go and tell the nations. He tells the women, I want you to go tell the disciples who are going to go and tell the nations. And we're going to get to more of that, but look at our, our fourth point in this. It's this, that King Jesus mobilizes Jesus' seekers to worship and witness. King Jesus mobilizes Jesus' seekers to worship and witness. We see this in verses 9 to 10. This is good news. Those who seek Jesus, hear me, they find Jesus. If you're worried this morning that you are seeking, you are truly seeking Jesus and that you might not find him, I think the good news of the gospel is those who seek him, find him. Notice in verses 9 to 10 what it says. This is great. It says, and behold, as they're going to tell the disciples, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. So catch this. They go to tell the disciples, and Jesus himself shows up. And what does he say? Greetings. Now, I looked up the urban equivalent of what's of that. It's what's up. Of course, Jesus' answer would be me. Like, you don't have to say much when you've been raised from the dead. Right? Like, you just kind of are there, and you're like, yep, you said it, it happened, what's next? And that's exactly what we find here. Greetings. What's up? And notice, notice here, a few notes for people seeking Jesus. The first is, take note again, that those who truly seek Jesus find Him. And this morning, if you are seeking Jesus, and you sense that fear of heaven is overtaking you, and your joy in Christ, be reminded that it's not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that saves you. If you seek Jesus, you will find Him. And when you find Him, He is not going to be looking for your score of of how worthy you are before Him. He's going to say that the reward is, is me. I'm the reward. And all things will be given if the Son is received. 
So be reminded, it's not the the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith. And if you sincerely seek Christ for peace with God, you will find Him. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're not a believer, and you feel like you are seeking Jesus, but you're wondering, can I find Him? If you truly are seeking Him, you will find Him. Find other Christians to pray for you. Seek Him in His Word, in the Bible. God will reveal Himself to you. Put your faith in Christ. But notice... Notice that they also recognize Him and run and grab His feet and worship Him. Not only that, notice here that they literally grab His feet. Now, you might be thinking, why does that matter? Like, they grabbed His feet. Okay, what's the big deal there? Well, I think this evidence supports a couple of things. First, we know that hundreds of people saw Jesus dead. Those are two two evidential facts that we know from the Bible. Many eyewitness testimonies, hundreds. These two things, one is hundreds of people saw Jesus dead. Very true, very verifiable. Second, days later, hundreds of people saw Jesus alive. Two facts, just we find complete evidence of that from hundreds of witnesses in the Scriptures. People don't really argue that anymore. In fact, the most popular non-Christian theory about the resurrection of Jesus isn't that it was a conspiracy, because that'd be too hard to cover up, but instead that it's a mass hallucination. So you might remember uh, famed analytic philosopher and former atheist Anthony Flew, who later came to belief in God. He actually studied the resurrection and had a conversation with another Christian, Gary Habermas, and they were talking through like whether or not the resurrection really happened. And here's the interesting thing. Anthony Flew is still not a Christian. He's a deist. But he says this. It's clear to me that people really believed they saw Jesus raised from the dead. And then he's asked, well, what do you attribute to that? Do you believe in the resurrection? He goes, no, no, I I believe it was a mass hallucination. Now, hallucinations are are interesting because by definition, they are individual experiences of people who are not seeing things objectively. And clearly, if something is not an objective reality, it's hard for multiple people to see the same thing at the same time. In fact, some have said that it would actually be more of a miracle to have a mass hallucination than for it to actually be true that Jesus was raised from the dead. So I don't have enough faith to be a non-Christian who doesn't believe in the resurrection. But catch how the resurrection mobilizes these women to worship and witness once they grab a hold of Jesus. Notice they first gather at Jesus' feet and then they scatter to go and tell. We see worship and witness as responses to Jesus. So third, they're, they're mobilized to worship. They're mobilized to worship. Don't miss this. If Jesus is raised from the dead, He's not just King of Israel. He's the King of kings, right? He's not just a human king, He's God. That's the point of the resurrection. And this is, I believe, the proper response to our living King. It is worship. It is falling at His feet and worshiping Him as divine. See, we need to show up, woke up, if Jesus is alive. If Jesus is alive, then everything in our lives should change, including our worship, both corporately and individually. Worship changes if we serve a risen Lord. Are y'all hearing me? If Jesus is alive, then everything changes. We will listen to the preaching of God's Word like our eternal destinies matter. We're listening more attentively to the Word of God if, if Jesus is King and this is the Word of Christ. So let's be careful not to forget that we are serving a living king. He is not in the tomb anymore. He is living God. But fourth, they're mobilized to witness. Not only do they worship, but they witness. 
See, this is unique in that only here does Jesus call the disciples his brothers. These ones he's going to call to his mission, he calls them his brothers. So the disciples scattered and abandoned Jesus as he went to the cross. You remember that. Peter denied him three times. But do you see here the beauty of this message? As all of his disciples ran from him in his darkest moment, he tells the women to go gather them back up and tell them this, tell them that I am calling them my brothers. We don't see Jesus call these men his brothers explicitly anywhere else in the New Testament, in the Gospels. See, the disciples scattered and abandoned Jesus as he went to the cross. But here, I believe, we see a beautiful picture of the compassion of Christ. You want to know what your king is like? This king of kings and lord of lords? This one whom brings this unimaginable power from heaven? A power that we should be fearful of if left to ourselves? And yet, if if in Christ and those who seek Jesus here, we see the compassion of Christ in that he calls these scattered disciples brothers, family who share a father and future with him. See, Jesus doesn't give up on the failed disciples. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't give up on failed disciples? Man, I am. Here he calls them to to himself. Jesus shows up in power and deals tenderly with the faint of heart. See, we don't want to take our doubts and fears lightly. But we also don't want to flinch at celebrating in a compassionate Savior who continually calls us back to himself. Not only that, notice here that those who have seen Jesus go and tell. They go and tell about this compassionate king. See, these women go and tell the nations before the disciples go. I mean, go and tell the disciples before the disciples go and tell the nations. And by the way, Jesus, you'll notice, he was already on the move before they made a move. Did you catch that? You need to go catch up with Jesus. He's on his way to Galilee. He's already going to the land of the Gentiles where you have Jews and and Gentiles who need to hear the gospel. He's already on his way. And they're on their way to follow His Word, and they meet Him. Now, who are you going and telling this morning? Jesus is on the move, and I think He calls us to be on the move. I think if we really understand the resurrection, then we are people who worship, and we're people who witness. Those are two clear things in the Bible. We worship, and we witness. Now, let me just ask you this morning, as you hear this, if you are not witnessing Christ to others, why not? I believe there are a couple of things that, that can keep us from truly worshiping God as we ought to and truly witnessing God as we want to. Those things are your life and your doctrine. Have you ever noticed that you find someone that maybe you need to share the gospel with? And, and could it be that when it comes time to share the gospel, you know that already in your relationship, you have compromised your ability to share Christ with them because of some decision you've made or something that you've done in which you have failed Christ? Now, I think there are a couple of encouragements here, right? One is, we see that that God uses failed disciples to make much of Himself. But I believe in evangelism, we also get a a sort of temperature gauge of what's going on in our souls and our lives. And it could be that when you go to evangelize to someone, and you realize that, man, I don't know if my life is quite up to par, the answer is not, so I think I'm just going to not witness and keep on going about my business and my sin. I think that's the Holy Spirit saying, this is an opportunity for you to repent afresh, confess your sin, and witness to the truthfulness of Jesus Christ who has been raised from the dead. And not only that, maybe it's not your life, maybe it's your doctrine. Maybe you feel like, man, I want to share Christ, but I just I don't feel like I know enough to share Jesus with someone. 
Well, I praise God that you don't have to fill out an IQ test to be able to share Christ with other people. I don't know if I or some of you, no offense, might be able to actually qualify for sharing the message of the glories of Jesus Christ. God always uses insufficient means to bring about His sufficient purposes to make His name great. But maybe in those moments when you don't feel like you don't know enough, you shouldn't just say, well, nobody's perfect and I'll just let it, you know, go to the next guy who knows enough about Jesus and I'm just going to kind of sit here and hang out. Maybe the response as a spiritual creature is, I need to grow in my knowledge of the Word of God. I need to be in church every Sunday. I need to be taking classes. You know, here at Trinity, we have tons of classes. Classes about theology, classes about how to shepherd others, classes about the gospel, classes about practical living. And those classes aren't just so that you can go and pass God's IQ test in the future. Those are classes so that you are built up in confidence in the gospel so that when you have an opportunity to make much of Christ, you feel ready whether or not you really are. We want you to have the confidence that you know God's word and trust God's word. So get busy knowing the word so you're ready when God brings that person into your life that needs you to make much of the glory of God. Or maybe it's one last thing, not your life or doctrine, but it's your gathering and scattering. I believe there is a strong connection here in this text between gathering for worship and scattering to tell about Jesus Christ. Christians who gather well, scatter well. Christians who worship a lot and worship hard and faithfully with other Christians are held accountable, do a great job of going out and sharing Christ with others. Right? You come together and you celebrate that you believe together that Jesus has been raised from the dead and that changes everything. And then you scatter to tell others the good news. And while you're out there, you're getting beat up and pummeled, right? Because you're witnessing the people who don't love Jesus and you're getting embarrassed and humiliated and you're losing stuff. And you're like, man, this is hard. And then you run back and you gather again to be reminded of who Christ is and to be encouraged. And other Christians lick your wounds and we, we come around one another and we encourage one another so that we get ready to go back out and scatter again to make much of Christ. You know, maybe this morning the reason you're struggling to scatter and witness is because you haven't been gathering in worship. And you need to say, you know what, this isn't going to be a special Easter. We're actually going to res- celebrate the resurrection every Sunday. And we're going to meet together all the more as we see the day of Jesus Christ approaching. You know, I'd encourage you to make this a day that's not special, but that is actually more normal in your normal rhythm of life. Celebrating the resurrection of Christ every day because He is risen. Let's pray.